The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Philippians 4, 10-13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Richard. Well, uh, on to our scripture, um, which this morning is uh, very perfect for what we've been discussing. Um, I had some friends that were in New York uh, some time ago, and they were, uh, he in particular was really excited to go see um, uh, the U.S. Open tennis tournament. He's a tennis player and has uh, played uh, for years and was really excited particularly to see uh, Marty Fish in what was called his last tournament <clears throat> to play Roger Federer in the fourth round. And excited and, uh, and, and everything was building towards this. Marty had just won a massive uh, match previous to that uh, versus a uh, somewhat unknown Spaniard and, um, at the time and was moving on to face what, who was and, and continues to be the best uh, tennis player uh, in history. He's won more, Roger Federer, who's won more um, <clears throat> majors than anyone else. Conti- I mean, imagine, he's wanting to watch this. His favorite, Marty Fish, uh, versus the greatest, who's considered like the LeBron uh, or Tom Brady or whomever you would put in that category of tennis and to see live in New York. Well, the day comes, and they still, he's still, they still don't have tickets, and he's really wanting that. So he, he's finding a vendor. He's, he's going out. He's trying to find the best tickets he can do, you know, whether it's scalpers or someone else. And <clears throat> finally, he finds the tickets he wants. He literally is handing the money to this vendor, receives the tickets, and right when he turns around, receives reports on his phone that Marty Fish has retired the match for physical issues. <laughs> and there will be no match. Can you imagine that just gut wrench? Oh, you know, whatever amount of money you've just gotten, you have the tickets in hand, you're so close, and then it just doesn't deliver. That is the beautiful picture of discontent in our, in, our, in our society. If there's a picture of this, it's of just a few Fourth of Julys ago when we were visiting our family in Houston and uh, <clears throat> our young nephew uh, at the time, they were all out, we were watching fireworks and it was this glorious, uh, uh, you know, event, right? You're out. Uh, at, at even a club watching fireworks happen. You're, you have ice cream. Everybody's kind of enjoying it. Now, the picture of, uh, is of my young nephew with this American flag sticking out of his pocket. And from behind, uh, Megan had captured this on the ground. He's just staring like this at his ice cream that he dropped on the ground. Is that not like 
and welcome to America. Like, you got the flag here, fireworks, life all around you, and all you can look at is, there's my ice cream. It's on the ground. And you just see the back of his head. That is the picture of what it feels like. Uh, We're constantly living in this. It's that feeling of walking away from a restaurant that you've been wanting to eat at forever, and it just didn't seem to live up. It's coming back from that vacation you thought would rest you, and you don't feel rested at all. It could even be further into, it could be that relationship or that marriage that you're in, and it sits with you in a way of, I just don't find myself happy. I don't find myself here. It could hit you in a lot of different ways. I wonder how it hits you. You know, Paul's writing from prison And it's interesting, God's providence of having Tim up here speaking. Um, And if you get hit by that bird, I'm not liable. (laughs) It might hit me. You know, for Tim to say what he said is so perfect for this morning. To say, you know, to drive down Hillsboro or wherever he may be after especially thinking upon his relationships with those who are incarcerated, worshiping in the same way that we are, and yet in a different venue and from a totally different circumstance, what does it evoke in him? I mean, Paul, and we have been reading this letter all summer, is writing from prison. He's writing from a place, honestly, where he's not able to get a bunch of stuff. He's chained to another guard 24 hours a day. And yet these people, this church, he's writing to a church that decided they want to care for him, they want to press in. So they send him goods to care for him. They don't only send him goods, they send him a person with those to be with him, to care for him in his incarceration. And you would think in that moment, especially if you're, if you're in Paul's shoes, and I know I would be, that he would just be like, oh gosh, thank you so much. But he, he almost does something that if you, when you read it, you go, is that a thank you or not? <laughs> He's like, thanks for the gift, but it's not like I really needed it. It is almost what it seems it looked like, Right? It's like, is he thankful? Is he not thankful? But what Paul is doing is he's wanting them and us to understand it is okay. It is good for us to rejoice in our needs and what we receive in them. But even more so, we, re- we should rejoice in what meets our deepest longings. And that is not happiness. <laughs> Imagine Paul is not writing about happiness. He's writing about contentment. He's writing about what the greatest gift is. At the thing that is most elusive. Even he even says here it's elusive. And that's what we need to embrace. We need to embrace that it is elusive. It will always be. Until what we know is Jesus coming back and making that satisfaction. We are always wanting more. There's a deeper satisfaction. And I think there are two parts of what he says here. What he wants them to know is that contentment is both learned and lived. It's learned and lived when he begins this, this passage, this short verses here, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, obviously, he's pointing out something. He's saying, I've learned it. There's something he's had to put himself into to think about. How does he make sense of this? 
It's a learned thing. Contentment is learned. But here's what's even, if you look at the Greek here and what he's mining out to them, he just listed last week, and we mentioned this, a list of virtues that many of the people in Philippi would go, okay, that, that's, we're used to that. We want to be good people. We want to be this kind of person pursuing whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's great. And again, he goes back to that. But he uses a word here that says, in, <clears throat> for learn, that means I have been initiated. It actually is a verb normally used in rituals of initiation into mysterious religions. It's a word that's actually not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It's that rare. And the reason that Paul is using that is he's wanting to draw something out to them. He's wanting to connect that there is a connection to your culture. There is a connection to how you learn contentment with what you live in. Your circumstances, your plenty, your want. And what is that? And see, many in that culture believe that if you pursued desires, that you were just negating everything about it. So, so cut off desire as what was called stoicism at the time and even other philosophies. If you cut off desire, you cut off all the problems. But if you do that, you cut off who you are. That's not what Paul is saying. He doesn't say that you shouldn't have desire. He's talking about need. He even says, I learned these things. But what he's saying is in irony that there is something there that we need to understand. How does our understanding of contentment connect to us? How does it? There's an article in New York Magazine that was called, The World is Better Than Ever, But Why Are We Miserable? And no, it's not another technological thing like it's our phone problem, right? This is actually beyond that. It says, as we have slowly and surely attained more progress, we have lost something that undergirds all of it, meaning, cohesion, and a different, deeper kind of happiness than the satiation of all our earthly needs. We've forgotten the human flourishing that comes from a common idea of virtue and a concept of virtue that is based on our nature, He says, for most of the ancients, freedom was freedom from our natural desires and material needs. It rested on a mastery of these deep natural urges in favor of self-control, restraint, and education into virtue. It placed the community, the polis, that is the state, ahead of the individual, and then indeed could not conceive of the individual apart from the community. They'd look to our freedom now, though, and see what licentiousness, chaos, and slavery to our desires They'd predict misery, not happiness, to be our result. See, here's what's interesting. What does it mean for us to learn contentment? What does it mean for us to learn it? Because he even uses another word called secret. There's a secret to it. What is contentment for you? Do you know that? What he's getting at here is understanding your discontent. He's actually saying the opposite. He's saying to you and to me, he's saying, do we understand our unhappiness? That's what the New Yorker article is getting at. It's saying, okay, for the ancients, they looked at it this way for contentment. Do we understand how we are pursuing it? And our licentiousness, our happiness, filling ourselves with the object of our desire. Where are you discontent in your heart? Where is it that you're processing, trying to be satisfied in something that cannot meet that thing. What does it cause for you? What is the house that you look at? What is the relationship you see? What is the post that you like? What are, what are the ways that you pursue trying to get that satisfaction? 
Are you discontent with your work? Are you discontent with those around you? Are you constantly feeling like you just never feel full and happy? And is it tied to something? What is it? This is what Paul's saying, learning what you're discontent with. What are you you always wanting that you're not? Are you always wanting to see yourself in a certain light? Are you always wanting to, to be the person that you see next door or in the next cubicle or in the next marriage? What is that that pushes deep in you that longs to be content? Is it in your circumstances? How do you manipulate and work your circumstances so that you have just the right amount of whatever it may be, vacation time, success, connection, that you think that it is going to meet the deepest satisfaction in you? And that's why they're writing articles about why we're so bored that we keep trying to be satisfied, but not every time we do it, we're bored with the next thing. We're bored. Still bored in a culture of entertainment, as one writes. Says we're bored despite living in remarkable times, just as a drug user develops a tolerance and needs larger doses to achieve the same effect, so we too have developed a tolerance to amazing events and perhaps to entertainment. That we continue to look for things that are going to meet that. And it just never does. How many new restaurants are going to open up with reclaimed wood and all that in, this, in, our, in our city? To where we feel like we're going to have the next meal. This one is going to beat that last one. How many different places do we have to figure out where we're going to go on vacation that we're really going to feel that rest. I mentioned this even a year ago. I know every time I drive over that bridge going to 30A in Florida with the rest of Nashville that I'm going to hopefully feel as though I get some sort of relaxation. And I feel so much of it driving over the bridge because I know what I'm going to and I feel none of it when I go over back. We burn through it so quickly because we're all discontent. Like I was driving uh, just uh, this week and I, you know, we've had so much rain and I saw, uh, M- Megan and I were driving and we saw the most beautiful, glorious rainbow. I don't know if you saw it. It was, it was so, I've never seen a rainbow so close. Uh, it looked like it was just right in front of me. And I was really, and I actually said this out loud, I was seriously tempted to just slough off wherever we were driving to and say, let's just go find the end of that thing. But what what if I did do that? Everybody in this room knows what I'd be doing. What would I be doing? Chasing nothing. It would continue to move. It continues to, to move around. And I swear it was as close as I could get. And why in the world have we, and, and we were joking about it in the car, <laughs> joked about it with me, hoping to find what on the end, other end of the rainbow? A pot of gold, right? Why do we always think that? How did we come from a rainbow to a pot of gold? Because we're hoping to find something at the end of it. Something that will satisfy us. And there was a legitimate need in me to want to do that. I wanted to find that. I wanted to be satisfied. Because there's so much around us that we think will. What is that thing? What is the thing that you put most of your hope into? 
to feel satisfied. I even read an article recently, and if you type in contentment, you'll find a million things. It's amazing. But I read one just uh, yesterday or a couple days ago. I don't remember what it was. It said, uh, money really can buy you happiness. And it showed all these different numbers. If you're here, this number will probably make you feel good. If you're in this country, it'll probably be this number. If it's in this place, and it said, but well, you know, but it, but it varies by country and by place. But isn't it true that every one of us in this room is always measuring the bar of our success, our happiness, and our encouragement of satisfaction by the movement of that bar around us? We always put ourselves in a position, a neighborhood, a club, a place, a friend group, where we feel like, are we in the same region? And the bar always moves. In order for us to feel some sort of satisfaction, do we know it? The question here is, have you learned it? Are you putting yourself, what is to learn something? It means that you actually take it up and think on it. Paul is saying to them, look, you need to take it up. You don't need to just pursue these things. I'm not just pursuing them. I've learned it. I've actually looked into my situation to know what it means to be brought low and to abound in every circumstance. Are you looking into the things of your life in this very moment and learning that they're actually trying to give you satisfaction and they can't give it to you fully? Yes, we can be encouraged and have things here that are wonderful things, but they always finish. That awesome book always has a last page. That meal always has the last part on the plate. Every year continues to go by. When are we going to actually realize to learn contentment is to know that we're discontent. Embrace it. That's what Paul is getting at. He's saying to them, can you take it up? Can you hold it? And can you learn where it has you? Where discontent is running your life and you're wrapping everything around trying to be satisfied of this thing and that the bar always moves. Can you learn it? Can you be, as he says, initiated into it? And here's what's interesting. He ironically is talking about not just initiated into a mystery, which most of them would understand. They would actually see that and go, Yeah, he's talking about one of those mysteries. This is one of those things where I can be a part of the club and know what it means to be satisfied and other people don't know. It's like we're all asking, we're all looking and oh, he's found it. But here's what he does ironically for the Philippians. He says, the secret is not just learned, it's lived. The secret is this, it's knowing that it's outside of you, not within you. Again, he points again outside of himself. He says there's something else. C.S. Lewis has said this better than anybody. When he said, whenever I find a perishable bliss, a good meal or a good job or a lovely sunset or a new friend, even if I'm enjoying that thing and I'm content by it, I realize that it's stimulating me on to a desire that it cannot fulfill in me and that it's pointing beyond itself. It's pointing to something else, that the secret has actually been unlocked. It's not a secret of what we all think. And this is what, if you look at, uh, there's, 
There's so many things out now about um, um, books that have sold on happiness, like this overwhelming amount of new books that have been bought up regarding the topic of how do you be happy? How do you become happy? How are we that? How do we enjoy this life? How are we entertained, not just in that way, but it drives us to a deeper sense of meaning in life. But it's living, Paul says, this is an irony connected to their culture. And most of the time, here's what's interesting, Christians even have taken this to say, if you're blessed, you're content. But Paul doesn't do that. Most people read verse 13 and say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And you've seen it pasted maybe on a a poster at the YMCA. And you're working out and you're thinking, oh yeah, I can do all this. But the point of this is not to tell you actually what you can do. It's actually trying to tell you what you can't. It's actually saying, when you're in those places and those circumstances, are you living as though you're humble, in need, dependent? That the secret isn't that you have that finally find that thing that makes you happy, that you're living now for someone else, that it's beyond you. There's an interesting article in the um, Atlantic about this. It was called, There's More to Life Than Being Happy. And I thought this was fascinating and a really uh, well-deserved read. It's called, Research Has Shown That Having a Purpose and Meaning in Life Increases Overall Well-Being and Life Satisfaction, Improves Mental and Physical Health. Enhances resiliency, self-esteem, and decreases chances of depression. On top of that, single-minded pursuit of happiness is ironically leaving people less happy, according to research. It is the very pursuit of happiness, this uh, one psychologist put, that thwarts happiness. This is why some researchers are cautioning against the pursuit of mere happiness. In a new study, which is published uh, this last year, this was a few years ago, in a forthcoming issue of the Journal of Positive Psychology, psychological scientists asked nearly 400 Americans aged 18 to 78 whether they thought their lives were meaningful or happy and examining their self-reported attitudes towards meaning, happiness, and many other variables uh, over a month-long period. And the researchers found that a meaningful life and happy life overlap in certain ways, but are ultimately very different. Leading a happy life, the psychologist found, is associated with being a taker, while leading a meaningful life means being a giver. Now think about that for a second. What are the things that we live for, we learn and think and take the mind on, but we live for and put our life in that we look to to provide us happiness, to take and make us happy, that we think we're going to do it. We're going to have it. We live in a country, in a place where we have freedom to do so. That picture of my nephew with an American flag in the back looking at the ice cream on the ground is like the best feeling of that. Because all of us feel like we're in a place where we can do anything we want. Have that flag out of our pocket. We are celebrating the 4th of July. We can pursue whatever we want. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet, what do we experience Everything we wanted on the ground. And how do we live in that? We want to manipulate our circumstances. We live our life trying to change that. And even as Christians, we try and use the language of blessing to say that we need to be, if we're blessed in this way. But Paul doesn't even go there. He goes beyond that to, see, to say, I can do all things through what? 
him who strengthens me through Jesus. Look, here's the difference. Here's the distinction between any sort of contemporary or, or, or even Christianized version of contentment and what Paul is talking about. Paul is saying that you don't find it in being happy and you don't find it in putting blessed that God's given me all these good things that I need to take my eyes off that and look to the good things that he's given me. He's saying, take your eyes off both of those and look to him who strengthens you, not to the things that strengthen you. Notice that he says that. The way he finishes this is not look at those things that he gave you. He's given you so much. Paul is rejoicing in what they've given him, but he's saying, remember the the, the penultimate, the greatest of your contentment is the relationship you have in Christ. And here's why. Here's the difference. Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, different than any philosophy that can be that, that, that in both the ancient time and for us today, has experienced those desires. Do you remember what I read in Hebrews That we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. That means that Jesus has lived in your discontent. That means that God has sent his very son to experience the ways where you had the ticket in hand and could never really be satisfied with the event. That you had all the freedom you thought in your back pocket and yet you're looking at the ground and there it is, what you really wanted. That Jesus has put himself in that position. He has taken on your discontent. The very thing that you need to learn is what is it that makes you discontent? What is the house? What is the person? What is the job? What is the dollar sign? What is it? We could go a million ways that Jesus has actually put himself in the position to Feel that, experience that, die for that. That you don't have to manipulate your circumstances. Do you think Jesus went to the cross because he was happy? (laughs) Jesus didn't take up this life and he said it over and over if you read the gospels. He talks about the groanings of this life. Christianity is distinct because you have a savior, you have a God that brings you up into it. He brings you up into himself to say, be content with who you are in me. Take on this relationship, see what I do. He says in in, uh, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Look, many of us, probably most of us in this room aren't really worried as much about hunger and need. But are we so numbed by the fact that we can walk out these doors, go to any restaurant we want and order what we want, that we miss the fact that we are completely dependent on him? That in a moment's blink of an eye, it could be taken from us. And what would be left content with? What satisfies you? If you really want to be satisfied with the things of this world, it's knowing that you can never be satisfied with them, that you can only be satisfied with the one who has come and actually even taken on hunger and need. He said, I am the one who has no place to lay my head. I have no home. Where will I sleep? And then he says to his followers, come follow me. 
If every platform you live on, everything was taken out, where would you be most satisfied? And Jesus says, I'm not bringing you a heavy burden. My burden is light. Experience the contentment in this relationship different than any other one. See, this is the difference in this table than anything else. This table symbolizes this. It symbolizes the fact that we are discontent. Why do we always have to come back to this table every week? Because it's an appetizer. Just acknowledging, even if you're here this morning and you would say, I don't know if I follow Jesus. I want you to hear that even this, what this table actually means is the fact that we are recognizing, we're willing to admit we're discontent. And we come to it every week because we have to learn that discontent and be filled again with the life of contentment that is in Christ. He took on this, his flesh and blood. He is the only one. Here's the thing that's incredible. Is this my body and blood? No, this is your body and blood. No, it's Jesus, the only one who proved that he was content, took up discontentment. That's why we come take this meal. There's only been one in all of history that was completely content in his relationship with God and it gave him satisfaction with everything around him. That was Jesus. Coming to take this meal means you're not coming to say you got everything, you're fully satisfied. It means you have him in which you can be fully satisfied. I take this meal just like you do. This isn't my table. This isn't Christ Pres' table. This is Jesus' table. He says, come, those of you who are discontent and taste, taste a bit of this meal that shows you that one day you will never have to long for him or anything else again. It's a meal that prepares you. It says, yeah, we're discontent because we've got to come back, but that one day we will never be discontent again and we will be fully satisfied in him. Let's stand together as we do.